everyone. Welcome back to the ninth episode of Heavier Than I Look, which is a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Russo, and I am your host. Today is November 1st, which means we are officially beginning American Diabetes Month. The ADA, American Diabetes Association, uses this month to distribute resources, educate, and raise awareness of the diabetes epidemic for the millions of that live with diabetes from all over the world. Today's episode is dedicated to all of those who may struggle with specifically diabulimia, which is a co-occurring eating disorder and a diabetes diagnosis. This condition characterizes the manipulation of insulin dosage to lose weight. Considering it's considered a purging behavior because insulin, which triggers the uptake of glucose, to be used as energy, can be emitted and then present itself with an eating disorder such as anorexia, bulimia. So it's not solely bulimia, bulimia, even though the name signifies diabulimia. It can also manifest itself in binge eating disorder and offset as well, other unspecified eating disorders. And restricting insulin can lead to diabetic, diabetic ketoacidosis, elevated hemoglobin levels, fear of insulin-inducing weight change, depression, anxiety. As many as 40% of adults and adolescents with type 1 diabetes engage in diabolemic behaviors. Diabetes is a high-risk factor for developing an eating disorder, which is why prevention, diagnosis, and treatment is of the utmost importance. With this dual diagnosis, treatment requires a proper address of both conditions, both the diabetes and the eating disorder. So I just wanted to intro that a little bit because this week, again, is American Diabetes Month. So just keep this in mind. Um, This is an eating disorder not widely known nor widely studied, but... It's very urgent to gain more knowledge about this, considering that it's really very much life-threatening. Today's episode is dedicated to evolutionary theories of eating disorders. As we've talked about in the past, we're going to look at eating disorders through a number of different lenses. Um, We looked at it you know, through historical lens, we've looked at it kind of through a cultural lens. We've delved a little bit into psychology, but we are going to dedicate episodes in the future to a genetic or biological lens, more into psychology, more into sociology, into a number of different things that can help us gain a wider understanding and a deeper understanding of what eating disorders are and who they affect and how they affect people, and how to recover, and how to, be, and how to be treated if you do have an eating disorder. Unfortunately, in the medical world and in the scientific world, there's not a whole lot of information regarding eating disorders. Research and studies are urgently needed to give us a more expansive and more precise understanding of EDs. Eating disorder treatment is also widely considered ineffective 
compared with the treatment of other mental disorders because of not only the minimal funding received, but also because the etiology of eating disorders is not well understood. And the etiology is the set of causes of a disease or condition. So the set of causes surrounding an eating disorder and in developing an eating disorder is not well understood. So therefore, treatment is kind of blind in how it's going about treating individuals with eating disorders because it does not have the knowledge necessarily to back up the treatment practices that may be effective or may not be. So there is a lot of work to be done in the field of eating disorder treatment, eating disorder study, etc. Current treatments generally focus on reducing symptoms of eating disorders However, recently there has been a shift to focus on the importance of treating underlying causes of eating disorders, which is, you know, a a treatment practice that I think we all would appreciate because eating disorders are not solely about food, but treating the underlying causes of eating disorders is helpful if it has the information necessary to be able to identify and acknowledge the causes of an eating disorder. They are infinitely complex and they are multifaceted, but understanding more clearly and precisely what these causes are may be able to improve treatment. So if we understand the why, we may be be able to understand the how of treating eating disorders. As we've talked about before, eating disorders have gone rampant, not only because our definition of eating disorders has become a little bit more inclusive and expansive, so therefore more people can receive the diagnosis that they need, but also because of a number of different factors in our body-obsessed culture and society, of which oftentimes perpetuates these disorders. And this is something that this podcast hopes to further talk about, discuss, explore, and also to make accessible this information to those who care to learn more. Again, today is evolutionary theory, so it's a very specific and very dense lens of which we are to view eating disorders. But I think it's very interesting to view these kinds of things um, because they do touch on a little bit the causes of such conditions. The research agenda right now in the field of of eating disorder study, I just wanted to give you guys a little sense of of what it looks like and what it sounds like. So this was an approach uh, facilitated by the James Lind Alliance, compiled by patients, caretakers, physicians, and they basically asked everyone you know, what are the questions that you see most urgently needing to be answered in the eating disorders field? And I think they came up with a list of like 10 or so questions. And I just wanted to to give you guys a little bit of a sense of, of what those questions were and what they might be asking. So number one, which factors influence the duration of recovery and the possibility of complete recovery? Which patient and disorder-related features can be used to provide more personalized treatment? 
is it more effective to address the eating disorder symptoms first or the underlying problems? What are the most effective treatment and order of treatment for patients with an eating disorder and a comorbid disorder? Which treatment setting, outpatient, at home, day treatment, inpatient or residential, with or without parents, provides the best treatment outcome? How can loved ones contribute to the recovery process of an eating disorder? Are there specific risk factors for the development of an eating disorder? And if so, how can prevention target these? What is the influence of the quality of the working relationship between the treatment team and the patient on treatment outcome? Is it better to use a protocol based on a guideline or to tailor treatment to the individual? And then finally, what causes the need for self-destructive behavior in patients with an eating disorder? So as these questions are being answered and being sought out in recent advances in research, there's one psychological lens that seeks to explain the why of eating disorders, which is, which is evolutionary theories. And there are many ways to seek the why of eating disorders. Like I said before, biological sociological, psychological, all of which we're going to explore a little bit more in depth in a future episode. This episode and the time that we have allotted for this episode just does not, you know, it does not cover the scope of all the different reasons why an eating disorder might develop. But this specific lens of of evolution, I think, is particularly interesting because it's such a niche, you know, part of the, the medical and scientific field. And what's, what's also very interesting when we jump into evolutionary theories is the fact that the specific theories generally all either describe restrictive subtypes of eating disorders, namely anorexia, or non-restrictive subtypes of eating disorders such as bulimia or binge eating disorder. So it's kind of interesting how the designations of evolutionary theories only focus on specific types of eating disorders so clearly, right off the bat, you can see that that um, that truth about these evolutionary theories just is telling of how little, you know, how little knowledge and how little research we have surrounding these disorders, um, because generally looking at an eating disorder or one specific eating disorder in your research is great because we can learn more in depth about that eating disorder specifically but then it fails to address the needs and the why of other eating disorders. And that is one of the common cited critiques of all of these evolutionary theories that they focus on one instead of the other. And because they focus on one, they cannot explain the other. So therefore we're kind of left, you know, gaping for, for more knowledge because it really is just very reductive in their in the research that we have right now. So kind of an overview of all of these evolutionary theories is number one, there's this idea that like facial symmetry, which is associated with beauty, like ideals of beauty and an attractive body shape 
which is more associated with like a waist to hip ratio. So you have this facial symmetry, you have this waist to hip ratio. And these historically have been two markers of physical and psychological health and perhaps indicate good genes, right? Quote unquote, good genes or healthy physiology that is free of genetic disorders and infectious diseases and thus are related to greater mating success, positive social feedback, higher self-esteem. They're also associated with psychological characteristics such as honesty, reliability, trustworthiness. And such ideals are, you know, evolutionarily and um, neurologically based, but they can also be reinforced with social media, as we've seen, (laughs) because we're inundated with a specific type of body, which is one portraying a thin ideal of humans. So this is just kind of an overview. It doesn't necessarily get into specifically eating disorder evolutionary theories, but there are a number of theories. There's the intrasexual competition hypothesis, the reduction suppression hypothesis, the adapted to flee famine hypothesis, the thrifty genotype hypothesis, a set point theory or dual intervention point model, and then then we can talk about more novel approaches to evolutionary theories. One specifically I want to talk about is um, a psychoneuroimmunological. Wait, <laughs> let me say that again. Psychoneuroimmunological. Immun- immunol- immunological? Immunological? <laughs> it's a long word. Psychoneuro. Immunological, immunological, okay. All right, so that's the the final one that we're going to talk about. Um, But let's jump into these older, not older, these, you know, more established evolutionary theories. So first one is the intrasexual competition hypothesis. And this hypothesis is the only one extensively supported by evidence really all the other ones have you know evidence here and there but it's not as extensive as this hypothesis and it suggests that the ultimate cause of eating disorders is intense intersexual competition for mates and this hypothesis recognizes that a woman's body shape is an indicator of her reproductive history and her reproductive potential and thus her mate value which is partly signaled by the waist-to-hip ratio and body mass index. And it kind of results in this enhanced female-on-female competition or unwanted sexual attention from males in modern, urbanized Western societies, which can cause fears related to weight gain and body image. And they found that these... um, this like competition between females is perpetuated in high stress conditions. So for example, exposure to female competition, male attention, media, which all induced greater body dissatisfaction and anorexic type behavior in women compared to low stress conditions. 
It also, you know, touches on the thought that a woman's reproductive window is finite, which is why men have evolved a preference for cues of fertility and youth in order to further their genes. However, this hypothesis does not explain why only a fraction of women and also homosexual men develop eating disorders. In addition, the hypothesis does not explain why some people develop a strong obsession to lose weight that they starve themselves through anorexia while others may binge eat or become overweight. So again, some one of the contentions of this specific evolutionary theory, also considering that it's the most um, evidence-based, is that it does not explain other eating disorders. It strictly explains anorexia and only within a certain population, that population being women with anorexia. Not women with binge eating, not women with bulimia, not women with any of the other host of, of eating disorders, but women solely in anorexia. And also it does not explain um, gay men adopting these behaviors as well. And then you have the reductive suppression hypothesis. So this is specifically for anorexia, and it considers eating restriction as an unconscious strategy to delay reproduction in times of disadvantageous environmental conditions by lowering the amount of body fat to a level incompatible with ovulation. So it kind of views anorexia as a method through which females could suppress reproduction when offspring survival was threatened in order to control when they could reproduce. And historically and evolution, evolutionarily, I think the people who, or the females who would engage in these practices would have higher overall reproductive success and then be able to pass on such genes. So this is just kind of the idea that women can control the timing of their reproduction because low body fat results in the termination of ovulation and, and amenorrhea. Extreme dietary behaviors can eventually lead to the loss of fertility and the suppression of reduction. So that if you almost delay the timing of, of your ovulation, therefore you can control in some sense your fertility and reproduction. And then you have number three, the adapted to flee famine hypothesis. And this, again, only explains anorexia. So it talks about how food restriction, hyperactivity, denial of seriousness of weight loss, previously enabled migration during periods of local food insecurity, allowing individuals to reach more food secure areas. So those who would survive the journey would pass on those genes. So again, if one were to restrict food, were to engage in hyperactivity and deny the seriousness of their weight loss, perhaps would be able to survive the journey from local food insecurity to a place where it was more, to an area where it was more food secure. And thus, because they were able to survive, pass on those same genes, which would 
increase the chance of developing anorexia. Then you have the thrifty genotype hypothesis, which explains binge eating disorder and bulimia. So this is our first evolutionary hypothesis that explains BED and BN. And it suggests that binge eating is a psychological adaptation which arose because extra energy stores were protective in the evolutionary history of our species. So if you overate and if you, you binge ate, you, you know, developed the, these fat stores, these extra energy stores that your body would be able to tap into later on to avoid malnutrition, to avoid food insecurity, and to help survival through, through famines and, you know, particular variations in energy supply. Um, yeah, so basically BED and BN as like a defense mechanism for your body to engage in in order to protect itself later on. You also have set point theory or otherwise known as the dual intervention point model, which explains excessive food consumption, so specifically BED and BN where a body has upper and lower limits for weight, which when exceeded triggers physiological adaptations. Set point theory is is one I want to talk about a little bit more in another episode because that's a more novel kind of approach to eating disorders and especially weight change during recovery. And it's something I've noticed for myself as well. So I want to do some more research into that and give you guys a more in-depth view of what set point theory is. But just again, it explains excessive food consumption and how your body kind of has these a certain number for your lower weight or lower limit and a certain number for your upper limit, almost like a domain, I guess, or a range, one of those two, <laughs> which when exceeded kind of triggers these physiological adaptations. Um, that will keep you within those limits. Newer approaches to evolutionary theories of eating disorders tend to view them on a continuum, which I believe is very helpful, as not only does it mirror my own experience of an arc, an eating disorder arc, but it ignores and neglects, ne- neglects a hierarchical understanding of eating disorders. Because if you only explain one and you don't explain the other, that one gains the most importance. And as we've seen, anorexia kind of exists at the top of that, you know, imaginary list. One of the more novel approaches is binge eating as a protection against eating disorder, which I found very resonant because... It kind of explains how the denial of, of nutrients during anorexia, specifically during anorexia um, restrictive subtype. Let's just go into this a little bit so we can understand this theory a little bit better. Anorexia has two subtypes. You have anorexia restrictive and anorexia binge and purge. Anorexia restrictive is kind of self-explanatory. Um There's a restriction of certain food groups, calorie counting, counting, skipping meals, obsessive rules or rigid thinking about around food may be accompanied by excessive exercise. 
And then the binge purge subtype places severe restriction on amount and type of food consuming, but may display purging behavior or binge eating. And it feels, you know, like a loss of control surrounding food, a ton of shame surrounding food. And the purging behavior can be used to compensate for eating food. I kind of see myself as having drifted between the two. I think I started out as a restrictive subtype, but then had to, you know, kind of be placed in the in the binge purge subtype. And I believe that these subtypes arose out of a need for this identification because 25 to 30 percent of those with bulimia nervosa previously di- were, pre- were previously diagnosed with anorexia, while only 5% of bulimia, those with bulimia nervosa were diagnosed with anorexia nervosa afterwards. And you can kind of see the progression. So generally it goes from restriction to a more like binge purge style in the eating disorder arc. And this evolutionary theory explains why. Because the denial of nutrients during the restrictive time could switch on a pathway encouraging the consumption of calories, explaining the binding behavior when you switch to binging binging and purging. So when you restrict yourself for so long, you deny yourself nutrients, you deny your body what it needs to function, then all of a sudden your body is like, how can I protect myself in the future so that I do not have to live in survival mode? And one of those protections is developing a more binging, purging style. These disorders, in my own experience, and I'm sure others can relate, exist on a continuum. Yet they may not coexist. So they exist on a on a on a continuum. They exist on a spectrum. You can have multiple, but just you know to note they may not exist at one and the same time. They're going to. There's probably multiple that are going to exist in your life or can exist in your life, but they may not exist at the same time. And then there's other genetic evolutionary theories, which are outside the scope of this episode, yet we will, we will return to these. And these kind of explain the genes predisposing one to develop an eating disorder. These genes remain in large part to be discovered, but it's something to look into a little bit further. And then finally, one of the more novel approaches that I did a ton of research on before this episode was again that of the psychoneuroimmunological, immuno, immunological. That's how it is. Okay, that one, <laughs> that approach, which again started this idea of eating disorders on a continuum. And it suggests that EDs are not separate diseases. And based on variation in patients, Biobehavioral states, the continuum model ex- explains why unspecified eating disorders is a common diagnosis and why patient diagnoses might shift between eating disorders over time. Um, and this continuum has 
binge eating disorder at one end of the, of the spectrum and anorexia nervosa restricting se- subtype at the under, other end of the spectrum where bulimia and bulimic type AN are located between the two extremes, so within that continuum. And again, some more knowledge to back up this claim that eating disorders are a continuum is that more than 50% of women diagnosed with anorexia nervosa develop bulimia. So anorexia changes to bulimia. And this is explained by, you know, as an individual's, not only as it's a body's like defense mechanism to ward against survival mode again in the future, but that um, anorexia changing to bulimia can change the individual's nutritional status and gut microbiota, which may in turn influence their stress responsivity and the functioning of the serotonogenic system, so the serotonin in their system. A lot of big words today, guys. (laughs) Um. So this hypothesis specifically is supported by findings showing that bulimic anorexia subtypes differ from restricting restrictive subtypes of anorexia in a microbial community composition while refeeding changes the gut microbiome. In addition, after refeeding has increased you know concentrations of certain bacteria and certain hormones and certain, you know, serotonin levels and certain concentrations of those of those things in your gut, homeostatic responses in the serotonin system may lead with time to a state where serotonin levels undergo an excessive de- decrease, which in turn causes the urge to binge eat. So when we talk about a lot of these, you know, concentrations of things that are in your microbiome we talk about also you know neurotransmitters and all of these like neurochemistry underlying factors of eating disorders and this is something I want to talk about even further in another episode but it was just important to bring up considering that this episode deals with one of those models And this model indicates that between individual and within individual variation in eating disorders, it can partially arise from your gut microbiota and stress responsivity, which influences neuroinflammation in the serotonin system. So this hypothesis, as you can already tell, is highly rooted in neurochemistry. And just to break down a little bit of what this all means. So when we talk about neurochemistry and when we talk about these specific hypotheses, what's central is the serotonin and the microbiome. So in history, we have developed a neural network which rewards an action related to eating. This includes any kind of foraging for food in which we are rewarded and also chewing which produces serotonin cells and activates dopamine neurons in the brainstem and in the prefrontal cortex. 
So any action related to eating or food can be rewarded because of the neural network that has been supported historically. When we talk about serotonin, just some background, it is known to influence impulse control, obsessionality, mood, appetite, and an increase in serotonin activity reduces food consumption generally, and a decrease in serotonin activity increases food consumption primarily and may prompt weight gain. So studies on anorexia patients have reported some dysfunction in the serotonin system. So anorexia patients are known to have high levels of anxiety, obsessionality, and harm avoidance, both pre-morbidly and after recovery. They may also have higher levels of serotonin pre-morbidly, resulting in a dysphoric state. So this suggests that dieting and starvation makes anorexia patients feel better by decreasing serotonin activity in the brain. And again, when you decrease serotonin activity, you may increase food exemption and produce weight gain. And also mitigate against the high levels of anxiety, the obsessionality, the harm avoidance that serotonin, high levels of serotonin or dysphoric states of serotonin may produce. So the brain compensates by increasing the number of serotonin receptors to utilize the remaining serotonin more efficiently. And this is kind of where a reinforcement may come in. So during the dieting and starvation, anorexic patients feel better mentally because they don't have as much of a dysphoric state of serotonin levels. Yet, afterwards, after, you know, after the starvation, after the dieting, after the restriction, the brain will compensate by increasing the number of serotonin receptors to utilize the remaining serotonin more efficiently. Yet this increase leads to reduced food consumption. So there's, those are these kind of warring ideas within the brain of someone's dealing with anorexia. Because a sharp increase in serotonin can cause extreme anxiety and emotional chaos, especially for those with initially a dysphoric state of serotonin. So because of starvation, the brain will try to increase the number of serotonin receptors to utilize the remaining serotonin more efficiently, which can cause extreme anxiety and emotional chaos. Again, these warring, contradictory ideas found one against the other in the brain of a patient with anorexia. And this is what makes recovery so difficult because of the self and the society reinforcing system. It often feels as if you are literally working against your brain in recovering from an eating disorder. There's also evidence on dysfunction in the serotonin system in bulimia nervosa patients, but in a different way. The serotonin levels of, of bulimia patients drop more than in healthy controls even during short periods of fasting. For example, during sleep, that's considering a fast, right? 
which can lead to mood irritability and binge eating episodes. So abnormalities in the functioning of these serotonin systems persist during the struggling of an eating disorder and persist after recovery. These findings support the hypothesis that bulimia patients have reduced serotonin production in the central nervous system and reduced serotonin generally means increased food consumption. When we talk about the microbiota and the microbiome, we describe the different microbe populations present in your large intestine, including bacteria, viruses, things like that. And your microbiota has evolved alongside humans to get us where we are today. So living in a mutually beneficial relationship, which includes bacteria, which includes fungi, which includes viruses, you know, which includes all of these things in order to help us survive. And the diversity of the microbiota, microbiota varies from person to person. And important evidence in this hypothesized mechanism between eating disorders and the microbiota is provided by the finding that in one study, 64%, 64% of individuals with eating disorders have been diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. 64%. That's a pretty large correlation. And IBS, in my research, generally develops and shows itself within a median of 10 years after having struggled with an eating disorder. So clearly there are some permanent changes slash damage that you may experience after an eating disorder in recovery. Know that you are not alone. I have also dealt with a number of these things. But getting back to the study, recent research has found that anorexia patients patients deviate from controls in the abundance, diversity, and microbial composition of their microbiota, which remain significantly different from those of healthy controls, even after refeeding, even after recovery. Their microbiota, the bacteria, the viruses, the fungi, the diversity of the compositions of all of these things in their gut is permanently different. And these deviant microbiota compositions and concentrations can be caused by dieting, but they also may exist as a risk factor because there's research that supports that eating disorder patients may have had a deviant microbiota pre-morbidly. So before even developing the disease, they may have had these different, these variant compositions of all of these things in their gut beforehand. But also, they are permanently different after. And an increase in stress disturbs your gut microbiota. There's infinitely more research to be done in this field, specifically for patients with binge eating disorder and bulimia, because studies on on those two are currently very much lacking. And studies testing pre-morbid microbiota concentration of eating disorder patients would 
would be particularly valuable so we can see the changes that an eating disorder may have on the composition of your gut. (laughs) So as said at the beginning of this episode, if we understand the why of eating disorders, we may be able to better understand the how to treat. And we discussed this a little bit last week with recovery and relapse because, you know, recovery includes treatment. Recovery and treatment for eating disorders are very much ineffective at this stage. It's much less effective than the treatment of other mental disorders, even considering the fact that eating disorders generally take, you know, a a lot of lives. They are, I think, as of right now, the second, they have the second highest mortality rate of all kind of mental or psychiatric disorders, second only to the opioid epidemic. But right now we have research that shows that only 46% of those with anorexia recover completely, where only one-third recover partly and in 20% of anorexia patients. The eating disorder remains a chronic condition. The average duration of the illness is six years. I have fulfilled that duration at this point. Currently, treatment does not include any kind of pharmacological treatment, no kind of medicine or approved medication. There's no approved medication to treat anorexia nervosa in the U.S. or really worldwide. As more research is done in the underlying neurochemistry, perhaps there may be more pharmaceutical options for those in recovery. There have been some models that suggest that lifestyle changes can reduce neuroinflammation and stress and thus can be expected to reduce anorexia symptoms, though further clinical studies are needed for this to be empirically verified. So clearly treatment right now is lacking. As we talked about before, treatment generally does take like a psychological approach, either with cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, CBT. Also, it can include um, like socially as well in terms of like family therapy or, or relational therapy as well. But right now, treatment is lacking. And that is because of the minimal amount of resources regarding research on eating disorders. There's been a recent uptick in media literacy as a part of treatment and as also a part of prevention, which I'm a big fan of. So media literacy programs constitute an effective preventative measure for eating disorders insofar as as idolized images of slim women and, and muscular men in the media overactivate intersexual competitive motives, which is our first hypothesis, and insofar as it is difficult for young people to reduce their overall exposure to media. So becoming literate in the images exposed by the media and the images perpetuated in the images that we are inundated with day by day of bodies and of being body-obsessed and of a thin ideal. These media literacy programs could help prevent eating disorders 
insofar as eating disorders are caused by our body-obsessed, thin, idealized culture. And the programs aim to make participants informed consumers of media. So they include psychoeducational components and show how photo editing, for example, software is used to make images look more perfect. So they're based on the assumption that by providing young people with facts about advertising and media images and marketing, they might be less susceptible to internalizing thin body ideals to being affected by such marketing and advertising strategies and thus be less concerned with their weight. And then behaviors associated with eating disorders can decrease in that sense or be reduced. All theories of the evolution of eating disorders share one common element, response to threat. And then I, th- I think that's pretty true of most, if not all, evolutionary theories in a wide number of, of settings. Eating disorders serve a purpose. They can at times be coping mechanisms. Identifying EDs as a response to a threat and then identifying the threat that eating disorders are responding to is critical in recovery. Because once you identify the threat, you may be able to implement more adaptive behaviors to address such threat in place of your eating disorder. Or you might realize that you no longer have to be threatened. And this is like an ongoing conversation with yourself and an ongoing conversation that will be had on this podcast as research develops and the theoretical framework under or surrounding eating disorders develops or becomes more extensive and conclusive. So again, these conversations are never over. This is just a starting point of which we will build upon in the future with Heavier Than I Look. Today's Art Insight Share is by a Nigerian poet known as Ijioema Umebinyo. If I'm butchering that, I apologize. And she is on Instagram at the Ijioma, I-J-E-O-M-A. She also has a website known as theijioma.com. And she also has her own TED Talk entitled The Culture of Silence, which I'm a big fan of. As you know, one of the biggest messages that I like to send is that eating disorders demand silence. So the culture surrounding eating disorder silence is touched on more broadly in Idioma's TED Talk. And she is a poet, and one of her, um, one of her lines, or one of her poet, poetry, one of her poems <laughs> is, or has a theme of, of being gentle with yourself, and she writes, Healing comes in waves, and maybe today the wave hits the rocks, and that's okay. That's okay, darling. You are still healing. You are still healing. I'm going to read it one more time. Healing comes in waves, and maybe today the wave hits the rocks, and that's okay. That's okay, darling. You are still healing. You are still healing. I know Ijeoma probably did not write this in regards to my eating disorder, but it felt incredibly relevant and resonated with me because one of the things that you talk about in recovery and and that like the Instagram community talks about a lot is then when you have 
these eating disorder urges or um, you want to engage in these compensatory behaviors, what you have to do is ride the wave, is let the urge come, is acknowledge it, but move on. Do not act on that urge. Perhaps engage in an adaptive, positive behavior, distract yourself in some way, but just ride that wave until it recedes. And it works because these thoughts, these urges are fleeting and they're temporary. And the more you practice this behavior of riding the wave, the better you get. And Idioma seems to know this firsthand. So a glimpse at next week of HTIL. So next week is our 10th episode. And in order to celebrate 10 episodes of this podcast, we are going to do a Q&A, a little question and answer session. So on our Instagram at Heavier Than I Look and Twitter at HTIL Podcast, I'm going to post a forum to collect questions for next week's episode. So head on over to these platforms. If you have anything you would like to know regarding my experience with eating disorders, the conception of the podcast, podcast production, what I've learned about eating disorders, what I've gained from this podcast, where I can see this podcast going, any question, nothing is off limits, I will answer next week's episode. So that'll be next Sunday morning at 9 a.m. All new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night. If you miss the live broadcast, feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own story of anorexia, binge eating, and body dysmorphia, you can listen on any of these platforms. And please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those you feel could specifically benefit. If you are interested in learning more about eating disorders, please visit the National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA, website at nationaleatingdisorders.org. If you or someone you love is struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support and recovery and consider seeking treatment. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I did not think anything would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment did, and treatment still does. If you are in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. HTIL has its very own Instagram and Twitter account, so if you would like to suggest your own episode topic or interact with the podcast further, please feel free to follow on both platforms at Heavier Than I Look. If you are interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show, please direct message at Heavier Than I Look on Instagram or at HTIL Podcast on Twitter. Do not be afraid to reach out. We would love to hear from you. My podcast, Heavier Than I Look, aims to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Eating disorders demand silence, yet this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize a survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. We must abandon a quantitative numerical definition of identity and reclaim our self-definition to exist beyond the numbers that rule our lives. In this way, HTIL is a space of healing, of recovery, and of storytelling. Finally, let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now, guys. See you next week.